and a weekend thank crunchy this is playback daily i'm carol moran and here's what you might have missed on your radio today they came to my house at approximately quarter past six and they stayed for about 20 25 minutes and shouted lots of obscenities get them out uh, they, they said I was a traitor for letting them down. My family were in the home on their own in a very, very uh, distressed situation. And, mm-hmm. and I have to say, very, very that this type of behaviour uh, has the potential to take root in our communities. So, left school at 16, absolutely useless, didn't have the price of a chip butter. I wanted to get involved in cars and vehicles, uh, but I couldn't afford a gallon of petrol. We also talk gibberish. Gibberish is fantastic. It's a conversation with no words. Maybe go. And to start, a bit of a laugh on the Ray Darcy show. Get ready. Here's a bit of research I read years ago, uh, and it came back to me today because we're doing laughter yoga on the show today, and you can be involved. Anyway, the research I remembered was that children laugh up to three hundred times a day. Right. Children up to the age of seven or eight laugh 300 times a day. And then when you get into adulthood, you only laugh about 17 and a half times a day. Now, there are question marks over that research, but it's, you know, definitely as we get older, we laugh less. And the benefits to our mental health and our physical health of laughing are well documented. With that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are inviting you after four o'clock to stop whatever you're doing. And join us for a laughter yoga session. If you don't, if you don't want to listen to me, what would I know about laughter yoga? Well, Yogi Ramesh Pandey is a big fan of the laughter and the yoga and all that. And here he is. A laughing yoga, laughing exercise for the heart and mind. What you can do, just laugh. Very easy. Don't feel shy. <laughs> 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 then laughter yoga enthusiast Cathy Moore popped into studio. Good afternoon, Ray. How are you? Good. You are a laughter yoga partic- par- practitioner. Is that what That's you call yourself? That's correct. Yes, practitioner, okay. facilitator, leader. Right. I lead laughter. Okay, right. Uh, I am standing up. You are standing up. We, yeah. I don't usually stand up, uh, but you can't do laughter yoga sitting down, really. Well, you can do it sitting down, yeah. Ray. And we can do it in like nursing homes and people with disabilities. But for the energy, we're just of a short space of time we want to jizz it up and we want to really get going so that's why we're standing What's the history of laughter yoga? The history of laughter yoga is it started back in 1995 in Mumbai with five people in a park one of them being a medical doctor and he was doing a research paper on the benefits so he brought together these people and they put together all these different exercises to make it work because he's seen that there was actual physical benefits to it. There was health benefits to it. His wife was a, a yoga instructor. So that's where the breathing comes in. The so prana comes he in saw the it. benefits of laughing. He saw the benefits, the scientific benefits. Yes, uh, for she the was a yoga teacher yep. with the breathing. Exactly. So they married the, the, the two. two together. Right. And from that, we have laughter yoga. So I did it about 10 years ago. That must have been back at the nearly, no, about, I'd say 2002. So that was in its infancy. Yeah, is, well, this year is the 20th years of laughteryogaireland.org with Mary Ananda Shakti, who brought Laughter Yoga to Ireland. She brought the founder of Laughter Yoga to Ireland, Dr. Madan Katara. And there's a, a video on YouTube, a documentary was done 
where he came to Donegal and he was doing laughter yoga right. with her where she launched laughter yoga yeah. and she's an amazing woman I call her my laughter guru and he also went to a blind school because in, in India they go to schools they go to workplaces they go to homes for the elderly the same as we do here as well mm. wherever we're invited we'll turn up How did you get involved? I got involved right because my life came to a standstill I was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 2011 that was on top of already having major chronic life-threatening illnesses previously and it was like oh no not again right so getting in you you're on this like track where you're medical you have to turn up for this appointment turn up for that appointment so you don't know which way is up and then suddenly when that's all finished you're left with nothing so your life has completely changed so friends that you had are no longer there because your circles have changed your work has changed everything has changed and you're trying to recreate yourself and trying to find yourself again so I went to a conference that the Irish Cancer Society had put on and one of the workshops at that conference was right. laughter yoga yeah, okay. and that's where I found my <laughs> laughter voice <laughs> and, and of course even though you may not be a serious person when cancer comes into the room People are serious around you, aren't they? Exactly. People walk away. Yes. As I say, it's not contagious. Laughter is, but cancer isn't. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So people are fearful and they don't know what to say or how to handle it. Okay. But as I see, you see here, I'm standing here in front of you today, right? Like, you know. You look great. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm rocking And it. you're smiling. Yeah. <laughs> so what are the benefits then? The benefits, oh my God, where do I start? Well, first of all, it lifts your mood. So it can age with depression. Now, I'm not saying that it cures it. It can age with depression. It lifts your mood. You're breathing deeper down into the lung. So all the toxins are lying at the bottom of the lung. So when you're laughing, you're exhaling further. So you're actually releasing all those toxins out and bringing in fresh oxygenated breath back down into okay. the lungs. Right. You're connecting with people because you're making... Like we haven't stopped making eye contact since I came in here. <laughs> so you're connecting with people. Yeah. You're making eye contact. You're actually, laughter is contagious. So you're building rapport with people. So in the workplace, with team building, with productivity, it raises all those levels because who doesn't want to be on the team that's happy? Yeah. Who doesn't want to be over there with that group of people over there who are laughing and having great fun? They all have bonded. I heard a lady saying she'd been at a hen's party laughter yoga and how great it was for bringing strangers together who had to come together for this hen's party and then come together for this wedding and they're going to be married together for life. Because I suppose in a group if you don't know shake people we all know each other. Yeah, so, so we're just shaking our hands. Our hands. You can do this at home now. You can instruct people at home as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Just hands. shake, flick your hands. Mark's doing it. Brilliant, brilliant. So in laughter yoga, we have a few little exercises. And little I think, and I think your biggest job is with Neve. She looks the most self-conscious. Yeah, oh, so okay. yeah. right. Yeah. Well, let's just move it up a little, okay. a little notch. So what we're going to do is we're going to clap our hands, and as we do it, our fingers are pointing up to the ceiling, and we want the acupuncture pressure pads in the palms okay. of our hands to touch each other. So clapping so at home. Clap. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. In your kitchen. In your kitchen. In the sitting room. Wherever you might be. Now we're going okay. to introduce a rhythm. So we're going to go and we're going to introduce some words with us. We're going to go ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. 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 Very good. Very good. We're lifting our arms up because that helps to open our lungs and ah, get more yes, oxygen yeah. in. 
Hands in the so, air, hands in the hands air, in the air. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, yes. And we're praising ourselves like children. We're going ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. And then ho, we're going very ho, good, very ha, good. Ha, Yay! Ha, we also talk gibberish. Gibberish is fantastic. It's a conversation with no words. We go. Go laughter yoga with Kathy Moore on the Ray Darcy show. And in the morning, the importance of living history. When was the last time you sat down and had a good chat about your family stories with the older members? Well, Ryan Tuberty did just that during the week, and the response was huge. Huge response to uh, the the story I was telling about uh, recording. My mum and my uncle David uh, with my cousin Sinead in in their house and my thanks to my auntie Annette, by the way, for accommodating us all so nicely uh, the other afternoon. And just we, we just uh, thanks to my cousin's initiative uh, recorded their stories talking about uh, my our grandmother, Mary Coyle, uh, who was originally from Derry, the original Derry girl in our family. And she, uh, it was lovely. And I posted a picture of the four of us and people had, I have to say, very, very lovely things to say about my mother. And I was chuffed talking to her yesterday saying, my goodness, people are, she was like the star of the show. Yeah, they loved her, her style and her elegance. And um, she was suitably mortified slash delighted. So that was good. And um, that was really, that was a lot of fun. But a lot of people saying they're now going to do that. They're going to record relatives of theirs for posterity, for for oral history, for social history. And I thought it was a real nice thing. What a great idea, says a text, uh, sorry, an email that came in uh, that your cousin had to record the memories of those who knew and loved your grandmother. And to let you know that here in Tum, we began recording the memories of local women uh, that are published in a magazine, which is free with the Tum Herald to celebrate International Women's Day. We are on number three, which will be with the paper on Wednesday, March 8th, which is, of course, International Women's Day 2023. And uh, this year we have uh, close to 40 women being profiled. Uh, the RTE Head of Archives and Library Services, two centenarians, one of whom will give a piano recital on the special day, poets, writers, eight women who have given over 170 years as Corgif Wirra at Knox Shrine, four CEOs and MDs of major companies, including the CEO of the RDS and the CEO of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce. And we have the woman who, with her husband, runs Campania, is it? The Michelin restaurant in Kilkenny. We have activist teachers and our own Gothic writer. We have the woman who, with her husband, is responsible for the Garden of Life in Salt Hill, which came as a result of the tragic death of her only child, who died at 26 years of age. We have women who have resurrected a big lace story in a local town. And women who spent 17 years writing the history of their local 20 townlands. We have uh, young women who've risen above their disabilities to perform real services in the town. And a strong section on amazing mothers and daughters and a most interesting her story section. So I'm the compiler, says Mary Ryan, and not the only contributor. Everybody connected with the magazine, Women Who Dared Three, uh, must have a, a connection local to the Tume Herald readership. And on the day the magazine is with the paper, the papers walk out the door. The magazine is for sale in our office after that. So if you could mention that, happy to do so. Thank you very much. And it's all about local uh, uh, history. And I know our friend Terry Carney was on as well. Delighted to hear talking about your family get together and the stories about your grandmother and recording them for future gen- generations. And of course... 
Uh, 823 children in West Cork did the same thing in a small project they ran over four years uh, when they recorded their grandparents' stories about their grandparents' memories of the 1916-23 period. And these stories are now preserved, of course, in that wonderful book, which I have, The Stories of the Revolution, uh, the only such project run in Ireland. So that's clever. That, that's the kids talking to grandparents about their grandparents. And Ashling Curley was listening to Ryan and called in about collecting her own family stories. No, I suppose it started initially... Um I, I'm actually a nurse myself and mm-hmm. I was looking after a patient and, you know, you get chatting and this and that and it transpired that she knew my grandfather and, you know, she, we got chatting. Now, my grandfather's dead about 30 years and whatever, but she was telling me bits and pieces about him and I, I thought it was really interesting and at the time, my grandmother was alive. Um, I suppose she was about 96 at the time and I thought, oh my God, that'd be such nice thing to do and to go in and spend time with her and to find out because I didn't really know anything about her and you know she was just granny and that's where we went to you know when we were younger and kind of growing up with cousins and things like that and um, yeah I did that then I went in one one afternoon and spent about probably about four hours just chatting and and it was so lovely so lovely So tell me about her what was her name? Uh, Christina McCormack and she was and she was from she was from Leash she was from a place called Ullard in yeah. Leash yeah and um, so she was an only child and um, she grew up on the farm okay and she married my grandfather then who was um, Jack McCormack and uh, yeah she went on to have um, I think about 10 children and you know from from an only child to kind of having 10, 10 children she was you know she was a great lady you know um, yeah, and I'd like I suppose when I was listening the other day, it reminded me of that that really special day I had with her. Um, and I suppose like that, I was kind of sorry at the time. You know, I probably didn't think of recording it, but I would have loved to. You know, um, give me a sense but, uh, if you could, Ashley. So your your granny uh, Christina was ninety about ninety six years old, and you sat down beside her for. Uh, the the chat yeah. and and you asked her questions yeah. which is which is kind of basically you did my job you were just uh, probing gently and asking about the, somebody's existence and life and you know yeah. uh, t- making them feel comfortable hopefully along the way because not everyone wants to be asked these questions you know that that's that's no. part of it no. so so what did you yeah. learn I mean what what did you find intriguing and and revelatory if you like um, I I suppose like at the time I didn't even know she was an only child. Um, and I thought that was, you know, she she didn't have any other family growing up. Um, and then she went on to tell me that her father died when he was, I think he was in his 40s. And the day that he died, he, he actually had a massive heart attack. Um, she ended up in hospital with a ruptured appendix, a really bad appendix. So it's back then, I suppose, they were in hospital for a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. So like that was that was kind of a hard thing for her to go through, especially as an only child, like her father dying, and then she ended up in hospital, you know. Um, and uh, then you know she would have told me stories about um, her cousin um, would have kind of helped her rear her family, I suppose. And they ended up; she was an only child as well, and they ended up living together, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was it was it was a lovely time I had with her, you know. Yeah, very nice um, thing to do. And and you said something earlier on. It's quite. I, th- I think that that would make people sit up, and it certainly made me. Was sometimes we 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 look at people of a certain vintage, uh, as you said, uh, as just granny. 
That was the expression that yeah. leapt out at me. No one's just anything, as you know, um, as, and no. especially after you had the conversation. And I think we take the, we're just getting on with life and we kind of take everyone for granted um, sometimes. Yeah. And we forget that they long, they're repositories of great history. And that doesn't mean they have to have invented something or, you know, <laughs> have climbed Everest. But their own star- personal local histories, their own personal stories. And to hear them the way Absolutely. you heard your grandmother was lovely. And, and I think putting them on film or tape or the written word, it, it's just a lovely thing to be able to give to the next generation and and beyond. Oh, absolutely. She, she And she was a really special lady, you know. And I suppose for her, I mean, you know, I'm very close to a lot of my first cousins. I would have about probably maybe close to 30 first cousins. And, like, we always went to grannies. We went to grannies every Sunday, you know. Mm, yes. And because of her, and I suppose because she lived so long as well, you know, we were kind of going out there for a long time. Um, but, oh, she, yeah, she was an amazing lady. Like, she died then when she was in her 90, she was 98 right. in her 99th year. Um, and, uh, yeah, her birthday was Christmas Eve. So, uh, um, yeah, no, really, really, really special lady, you know. And yeah. really lucky to have had that time with her, you know. Aren't you Aren't you so, glad now that you did take the time to, to, to head out to the house and spend absolutely. those hours. Yeah, what a lovely thing to oh, do. Oh, it was so special. It was so special. Yeah. It was just a lovely... I remember it was it was shortly after Christmas and, um, you know, and all the madness and everything else like that. We just mm. went in, the two of us, and we just had a lovely chat in the sitting room and just, it was so easy, you know. But I suppose, I mean, uh, looking, you know, having been listening to you the other day, you know, it would have been nice to even write it down or... You know, because even my memory, I mean, my memory wouldn't be as good as hers. I mean, she has such a sharp memory, even at that age, you know. Mm. Ashling there. Then later, Ryan spoke to historian Dr. Tomas McConmara. I know that you're the man to talk to about people listening, going, and the first thing they're probably going to say is, I couldn't be bothered dealing with that. I don't know how to do it. It sounds very complicated. What What do you say? Yeah, to well, them? I mean... Well, the first thing I, I would say is they can listen, you know, and if you have the capacity to listen, then you have the capacity to do an oral history interview because, well, if you have the capacity to listen and the capacity to press a button, they, you know, they, they're, they're the two primary functions that, that are involved, uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not oversimplifying things here, but the, the reality is that, you know, people went out in the 1930s and, and, and even earlier with these, you know, humongous edophones, which are very difficult to carry and travel the country to try and document the memories of people they felt were important to record but we've evolved with time digitally and technologically where we can do it with such ease and we also then have a reality that a lot of the older people that you've been talking about and the people writing in have been talking about you know are the very tail end of an older way of life and and we have you know an unprecedented capacity to record those memories and it is of such importance not just to the families of those people but you take all of the people that have been referenced already today Ryan and and all of those interviews are of huge value to people outside of those families as well and that's what I think the wonderful thing about oral history when it's collectivised when it's made available to the public generally the, the, Christina McCormack's memories would be of huge interest to, to many people around the country because they'll touch on different aspects of Irish life and they'll bring an understanding and an insight into dimensions of our, of our past 
that that people want to explore and people need to explore. So there is a huge value not only to the family or to the individual involved, but to broader society for a more you know systematic and determined uh, recording of our people because we 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 often see older people and you and I have spoken about this before, but yes. we see older people kind of drift out of utility for society when they get to a certain age and you know there can be I've seen a lot of sadness in older people you know when when they feel I suppose that they're their purpose has 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 gone and i think we can pivot that entirely yes. you know and and see the, the 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 time that people have and they have time when they get old you know their body might have broken down but they if if they're lucky enough to have the same you know intellect which they can have as they were when they were 20 you know if we reorientate ourselves to deeper listening to those people and we do it well and we do it according to the standards of old history then we can kind of convert that sadness or that that loneliness uh, you know into something of huge positivity and importance for older people and so lovely, lovely you know, I w- inclusive inclusivity with as we were talking about with the previous caller about uh, with Ashling about the idea of the kids and then suddenly it's three generations sometimes four sitting around together talking to each other it is, and because we digitally recorded, you have the the, the possibility of future generations listening yes, as well. Yes. You know, and and we have a, a perpetual and enduring benefit to the act of going and recording the memories of your of your of your grandmother or your parents or whatever that might be. So it's one of the few things you can do in life that has a value well beyond your own death. You know, without sounding melancholic, yeah. it, it has that tremendous enduring value. But again, there's lots of organisations who've been trying to. Do it. The oral history network of Ireland are out there, so there's plenty of support for people who want to do it and for that uh, effort to be to be multiplied throughout the the country. So I really would encourage people to to, as I said, go back to that quality of listening and that deep listening, you know, rather than the kind of monologues that sort of intersect with each other from time to time that we engage with most days. But really deeply listen. That is the the key thing I would always encourage people in this world. Historian Dr. Tomas McCalmara from the Ryan Tabridi Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, anti-migrant protests. Protests against the housing of asylum seekers and immigration policies disrupted traffic in parts of Dublin and Cork again last night. Roads were blocked by a relatively small number of people who continued what is now a series of demonstrations outside buildings which are being used to accommodate people who are seeking international protection orders from Ukraine and elsewhere. I'm joined first this morning by Independent Councillor Vincent Jackson who represents the Ballyfermot and Drimna local electoral area in Dublin. Vincent, you're very welcome and thanks for speaking to us this morning. Thanks very much, Claire, for having me on this morning. So listen, the crowds gathered outside your family home last night. Will you tell us what happened? Well, at at about half five yesterday, um, I have a young lad, a 10-year-old son, who has very bad eyesight, like really bad. That's, That's going in one direction. I won't even say it here, but he broke his glasses on Monday in school. Uh, the spec savers rang to say that they had the glasses available and when I left the house my wife's car was outside and my car was in the garden so I took my wife's car up to live and unfortunately I didn't take my phone and the glasses were a little bit late getting ready and I took them up to McDonald's and I took them to get his mum a birthday present a birthday in two weeks time and we even went to Tesco because he wanted to get something in Tesco as well a bottle of Cydonut so we got home to the house at about quarter twenty past seven and when I got to the house, I opened the door and I went in and my daughter was roaring and crying. She's 15 years of age and my wife was real upset. I said, what, what's happening? 
and she said there's had to be a huge crowd outside shouting and screaming and everything and it was in relation to what you were talking about earlier on and I'll explain that later I'm involved in a number of schools and uh and I said, outside our house. And my daughter was inconsolable, I have to say. And with that, friends of mine turned up. And uh, then it, it unfolded what had happened was there was a protest down at the roundabout in Ballyfermot at five o'clock in relation to the allegation by some people that there are refugees staying in a number of schools that I, I just so happen of a couple of them and on the board of management of other ones of those schools. And there is no truth in this, by the way. And uh, we put out yesterday morning information to that effect. There was no truth in it. But this protest was organised for five o'clock last night. And I believe there was a number of them around Dublin and around Ireland. There was one because I know there was a major issue last week where Our Lady of Good Council School as well, where there were a group of refugees staying for over the Christmas, but they were gone and all when the school reopened. But coming back to last night, apparently, uh, then came up and uh, when it's, they splintered off the main group when the protest was over, created massive mayhem on Ballyfermot Road. I'm sure there's a lot of people saying their prayers last night with the long and uh, travel down to Drumfin Road to the convent and to the secondary school. Yeah. So, so tell me, we know about all of these protests that were happening all around the place. They came to your house at what time and stayed for how long and what did they do? They came to my house at approximately quarter past six and they stayed for about 20-25 minutes and they shouted obscenities. They left for about 10 minutes when they went down to the convent down the road and the secondary school and then they came back to my house again for another 10 minutes and shouted lots of obscenities, get them out. Uh, they, they said I was a traitor for letting them down and, uh, you know, uh, and they said lots of other obscenities and anything, what I should do with myself and everything else like that. But my family were in the home on their own in a very, very uh, distressed situation mm-hmm. and, and I have to say, very worried that this type of behaviour uh, has the potential to take root in our communities. This is a great community, Bally Farmer and Cherry Orchard. For all its faults, it's a wonderful place. I love living here all my life. I've represented the area for 32 years and all my council colleagues were fully supportive of each other. Uh, you know, what we as a society have to do in situations like this. But there is no truth, Claire, in what, what's being spread in relation to our schools. There's supposed to be people staying there at night, leaving at 7 o'clock in the morning. And what people are saying that uh, we have school meals, hot school meals in our schools. Uh, there's meals being delivered at 3 o'clock in the morning by Glanmore Foods. We had to cancel those meals last night. Two principals in with me this morning. There's a huge drop-off in attendance today because a lot of parents were not happy to send their kids over to distressing scenes because this all started yesterday morning when there were protests outside the schools. Okay, sorry, sorry, why were the meal deliveries cancelled? Because we were afraid for the... We were told there's people outside the schools watching what's going on, uh, you know, at night time. There was no telling people. We tried to explain to people yesterday that school meals are delivered and uh, like Caritas College just said that they weren't prepared to have meals today because they didn't want any potential threat to any of the staff uh, delivering meals. And, and like, as, along with that, you're saying that parents are keeping their children at there home. There were lots. Uh, uh, one principal was only in with me five minutes before I commenced a conversation with you, and he said the attendance level, it's just a huge drop in attendance today, and a lot of parents phoned in, said their children were very upset and distressed with what they seen yesterday and uh, that they weren't sending their children into school today. And, I, you know, these are great schools that do a huge amount of good work for their kids. Yeah. And I would hope that a lot of this good work is not undone by a small few who are misguided, I have to say, 
unfortunately, Claire, they're being fed uh, information that's totally incorrect, and God himself or herself couldn't put these people on the straight and narrow. And you've tried, you've tried to talk to them, to explain to them that there are no refugees or asylum seekers staying in the schools, and and what's the response that you get? well, there's a narrative out there that other people are whipping them up that don't believe anything they're being told. Ali Farmer's councillor Vincent Jackson there then. Claire spoke to Pat Leahy, retired assistant Garda commissioner for the Dublin metropolitan area. Pat, I know that you don't know about the operational matters right now, but this type of protest, how did the Garda police it? When does it cross the line? Well, look, first and foremost, you must look at the basis uh, for law in relation to pre- uh, protest, Claire, and it's a fundamental right actually here in Ireland under the Constitution to um, uh, freedom of assembly under 40, Article 40.6.1 of the Constitution. So it's really, really, you know, strong law in relation to this. Now, when it's not absolute, it's defended by civil liberties groups and the courts quite stringently. So that, that's the baseline uh, for it. Now, then you have human rights law, the Article 11 of the European Convention on Human Rights covers it. And the actual behaviour of the police in relation to this, apart from the law itself, they're also held to the human rights principles of legality, necessity, proportionality, non-discrimination and accountability. And what they've been doing heretofore, really, the guards, that is, is relying on the Criminal Justice Public Order Act and generally Section 9, obstruction. And what that means is, like, you know, if, if, if the protest prevents or interrupts free passage of persons or vehicles in a public place, you can intervene. And uh, it's, it's, it's almost always built around obstruction or sometimes maybe uh, the non-fatal offence against uh, the person. And what about so the rights no... of, of Vincent Jackson's uh, family terrified in their home last night? Yeah, uh, th- that is not catered for in law in relation to protests in this country at the moment, uh, Claire. Uh, in the UK, you can, the, the actual police can intervene in situations like that because they have the power to impose conditions and restrictions on protests, which in Ireland you don't. And part of those restrictions are to prevent intimidation of others. Now, we haven't gone to that space here in Ireland. In actual fact, we have quite a free reign when it comes to protests, and rightly so in some respects because it's a key democratic right. But... Uh, when people push the boundaries on this, you see uh, activities like has um, been described, or has been described there on, on the radio yeah. uh, last night. And, in and, and in your experience, how are these police? Because the line from the Gardaí earlier in the week was that they would be monitoring these protests. And we heard some reports that there may have been plain clothes Gardaí watching those protests last night. But, you know, we have a family there who were quite clearly terrified. Vincent told us about other people in the community who are frightened, school attendance being affected, delivery of meals to the schools also being impacted. The Minister for Justice talking about whether these are protests or intimidation. Well, you would imagine, Claire, and I would, have, I would expect that there would be a uniform guard of presence at these protests, and particularly up around the private homes of individuals, so that at least people have the comfort to know that if anything happens, the guards are there and they're going to intervene and they're going to protect people. In terms of actually limiting the protest or stopping the protest or engaging, there's very little legislation there. And actually, there's no legislation in Ireland to intervene unless certain other uh, parts of the law are breached. So the guards are kind of left in the lacuna here. And the guards, we talk about the police as if they're, you know, a single entity, but they're not. They're men and women and boys and girls, and they will be held accountable individually. 
for pushing the boundaries of the law or stepping into an area where they have no legal right to be. So this is a far deeper uh, question and discourse that has to take place in order to move on the legislation or change the legislation, Claire, to protect everybody. Pat Leahy from Today with Claire Byrne. Then later, Ahmed called Joe on the live line. Ahmed, Ahmed, good afternoon. You're very welcome. Good afternoon. Ahmed, uh, where are you living at the moment? I live in Travel Lodge, Palamun. And what has been the situation there in the last uh, week or so with the protests from your from your side of the of the door? Yeah, four days ago, the demonstrations in front of the hotel in which the international protection seekers uh, reside in are continuing. The hotel, which is located in the Palamun, are is home. To mm-hmm. more than 200 people seeking international protection. Okay. They are from different countries, and uh, including children, women, families. Dozens gathered in uh, the place, brazing sl- slogans against the asylum seekers and chanting against them, go back to your countries and mm-hmm. uh, get them out. Mm-hmm. These, these actions, you know, uh, and chants caused... A uh, feeling of panic and fear am- among the women and children who are staying in the hotel that the authorities have designated for international protection seekers. And Ahmed, have you been able to leave the hotel to go about to go shopping? Or no, no. While they pr- protest uh, uh, outside, nobody allowed to move from hotel and even if you are outside you are not allowed to enter until the protest is over. Oh, when you're outside you, you can't get back in? No, it's not allowed. And what do you do, Ahmed, if you arrive back after a walk or a bit of air and you, you see the protest, what do you have to do? You have to stay outside until it's over. I stayed in the first day of protesting, I stayed like uh, two hours outside at, at night. Mm-hmm. There, there, there was, there was, you know, even uh, on one occasion, there was a speaker who was addressed. The demonstrators gathered in front of the hotel, and he described the asylum seekers as undocumented and uh, criminals. And you can find this in the social media. This is a pure slander and lies. You know, for example, I came to Ireland with my true identities, with my passport. Mm-hmm. and presented them to the authorities. Okay. We, we left our countries uh, forcibly. Uh, we, we left behind our lives, our families and children, in search for safety, in search for freedom and living in dignity. We are not criminals. We are, we are normal people, and we, we hope to live a normal life and contribute positively to the society we have come to. We expect to, to be treated with the, with the mutual respect hmm. and that our civil rights are respected. We, 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 are, we are not criminal. I was a human rights defender in my country. I worked in combating human trafficking for many years. And I was forced to leave the, my homeland. And when I came to Ireland, I registered myself with the local NGOs as a volunteer so okay. that I, a, a community could benefit from me. I never expected to, that I would, I would ever experience what I was exposed to there, unfortunately. And Ahmed, you're from Sudan. Why did you have to flee Sudan? As 
as I told you, I left Sudan because I'm, I'm searching for freedom and for dignity. And and I, I this, this I'm, I'm, I'm expressing an opinion is a legitimate right for all, um, and and all respect it. Uh, we are looking here for freedom as well to to an expression for freedom and, and speech yeah. uh, in of, of uh, and practice it on the right way is the great thing, and perhaps this is the one of the reason that made many people migrate to Ireland, and I'm one of them. Because we all believe that it is the alternative home land for us, which, which, in which we, we can live in dignity and in complete freedom without being exposed or, or humiliated. So it's, it's, it was shock to me and to, to the asylum seekers and seekers for international protection residing in this place that they were verbally abused, insulted and their dignity and humanity uh, violated. And, well, okay, and Ahmed, can I just say, that when people shout at you and at, the, at the, the people living in the hotel or staying in the hotel, when the people say to you, uh, go back to your home, which seems to be a chant, um, if you went back to your home, what would happen to you? Of course, I will face. I will face. You know, my life will be in danger. Yeah. I don't want to talk about my case because yeah, you know it's something. Yeah, I understand but, but but if I return back to my my home, I will I will I will not feel safe. Of course, and most of the people here they are the same. You know. Ahmed on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, the news of the death of Elvis Presley's only child, Lisa Marie. The saddest news uh, today of all is the death of Lisa Marie Presley. And I was really, I, I turned on Shay's programme this morning um, at 5.30 and he mentioned that uh, this was the news just in. And uh, I got really, I got really emotional about it. I mean, in the sense that I just thought, I was really, I'm a huge Elvis fan. I've been to Graceland. I listen to his music all the time. Um, and my pals and myself were all really, really great fans of, of Elvis Presley. And... Uh, yeah, very, very moved by by that awful news. And she was only fifty four, and I think it's probably tied up in things like the music we listened to as kids and in the car and family and everything like that. May from Cork emailed to say, "I felt I felt the need to contact you this morning to express my profound sadness over the death of Lisa Marie Presley. My husband was quite bewildered." to see me get upset over the death of someone I had never mentioned or shown any interest in, but I was interested. Elvis died a few years before I was born, but like many, I grew up surrounded by his music and my parents were adoring fans. The King was well and truly alive in our home and his music and story are part of my childhood. And Lisa Marie represented his legacy and one of the few pure, true relationships he had towards the end of his life. And while I'm sure they're happy to be reunited in whatever way these mysterious things work, there's no doubt he would have wanted a longer, happier life for her. But it was not to be. A very sad end to this chapter in the Presley story. And and, and that's exactly it. And even another text there from Alien says, I'm so sad to hear of the death of Lisa Marie Presley. We had planned to travel to Graceland for my husband's 80th birthday this year, but this news might change our plans. I would encourage this news to... to, to um, or to, to move on with your plan and go there. And when you go there, you'll go on a, there's a plane not too far that Elvis used to travel in and he named it the Lisa Marie. Uh, and I uh, was in it because you can, you know, buy a ticket and hop in it and have a look around. And if you look up photos of Elvis and Lisa Marie, it's very, they're very beautiful. I posted one this morning uh, on Instagram and and, and he loved that child and he loved that, 
he just loved her. She was only, what, eight years old when he died. So he never saw her uh, grow up, which is desperately sad. And God to help her, she lost a son of her own through suicide uh, not too long ago. So she, it's been a bumpy road to say the least. And I feel terribly sorry for Priscilla Presley, her mother, and of course, wife of El- uh, Elvis. Um, and the, the two uh, women, Priscilla Presley and Lisa Marie Presley, spent some time um, in Ireland as it happens. And Vincent Murphy is one of the people who would have met them. Vincent, good morning to you. Morning, Ryan. How are very, you? very nice to talk to you. Tell us how you came to to meet Lisa Marie and Priscilla Presley, please. Oh, well, they were staying with uh, friends of ours. Um, they they were staying in Kilshiel in um, <clears throat> in a Cartine Castle, mm-hmm. and they came over on one quiet Monday or Tuesday night uh, to the pub. I've I've a pub in Fetters in Tipperary, yeah, uh, McCarthy's Bar, and it's, it's an old pub, and to be one of the favourites of their friends. So they brought them over uh, quietly. And uh, they were in two two times. Lisa Marie was meant to be in three times, but uh, on the other occasion, she was over for the wedding of Marilyn Manson. Okay. Shock rocker. And um, they actually turned up at the door, but uh, the paparazzi had found out about it. So uh, they all disappeared back to the castle. So who was in the party in, in the one or two times they were there? Who was, the, who was there and what were they up to? Uh, Lisa Marie and Priscilla and Lisa Marie's kids, um, all the kids were there, and then Gottfried and Renata Helmine, their, their friends from Ireland. So it was a lovely gathering, a real family vibe to sound, by the sounds of it. Oh, very much a family vibe, yeah. They were all just sitting around having a few drinks, and uh, under the, the first occasion, um, they actually had a sing-song, which was, uh, wasn't was expected, but uh, one of the locals went down, and uh, we were cringing about it, but she said, would you sing an Elvis song? Oh, would, you, no. would you leave her alone? Oh. But, um, but what did I they know, sing? Yeah. What, did, what did they get stuck into? I was trying to remember this morning, I, somebody sent word that uh, she passed away, and it's either, I think, Sweet Child of Mine, <laughs> or Living on a Prayer, and they rocked the place, like they <laughs> sang it out loud. Yeah, I mean, they, obviously they could yeah. all sing, and, and uh, they'd rock and roll in their deep into their DNA. DNA. Uh, and can you give us any thoughts on Lisa Marie? What would she like that you, uh, as a person? She was very nice. She was there with her husband, um, Michael Lockwood, and the kids. Um, very, you know, very polite, very nice. I was chatting to them for a few minutes. They were walking around um, admiring the pub. Actually, they asked me, there's a set of antique, the pub is very old, it's nearly 200 years old. Yeah. And there's a set of antique um, beer taps on the counter. And she actually asked me, would I, would I be willing to sell them? So I told her I wasn't. Uh, she wasn't getting them their part of the place. You're not even Elvis Presley's daughter was going to get those beer taps. No, not even Elvis Presley's daughter. Wow. And then they were they were around the place. I did give her a present. Um, I had two old vintage uh, Guinness tankards down in the kitchen. They were downstairs where, beside the smoking area. So I was chatting to them down there for a while. And uh, they said they were looking around the place. They were admiring it because it was so old. So the old kitchen, the old hotel kitchen, the, the pub was formerly a hotel. It was down there. So they went in and there was a few things in there. And there was two Guinness glasses there. I said, right, I won't say to the pumps, but here's a present. So I gave them the tankards and the other tankards at home. No, that was a nice thing to do. That was because I think they liked their Guinness. When I was talking to Priscilla here one day uh, on the on the radio, she was talking about their fondness for the occasional pint. Well, I give you shock horrors. They weren't drinking Guinness that night. They were drinking Murphy's. <laughs> well said, Cork. Thank God for that. <laughs> Vincent Murphy remembering Lisa Marie Presley from the Ryan Tupperty show. Then later on today with Claire Byrne, Elvis fan Brian Redden spoke about meeting Lisa Marie. I am a big Elvis fan and I remember um, seeing uh, Lisa Marie in concert in 1997, 20 years after Elvis died. 
um, I was in Memphis uh, for the anniversary and there was a big, it was the very first time they did the big Elvis show where they had the Elvis on screen with all his original band members around and playing with him. It was an amazing event. And they had it in the Pyramid, which was a big a big uh, venue in Memphis. <clears throat> and uh, Elvis came on screen and started to sing Don't Cry Daddy. And then and then Lisa Marie came out and sang Don't Cry Daddy, Daddy back to him in a duet. And they blended the two voices together. And it was the first time that it ever happened. And uh, the first time she'd sang with her daddy in that way. And that was 1997, 20 years after his death. And I remember in the place, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody was absolutely blown away by it. Because, you know, she was a very private person. She didn't participate in a lot of Elvis events you know yes. she kind of shied away from it quite a lot this is the first time she's really going to publicly and embrace the legacy of her dad so it was an amazing and she hasn't got a she hasn't got a bad voice her voice was kind of like a country and western kind of tinged voice you know but she kind of it was <clears throat> it's an interesting but an interesting privileged but also tragic life that she led you know she seemed to have shy such a legacy to have at a very young age she's only nine when her dad dies and bear in mind the Prezies are kind of cursed because Elvis's ma died when he, she was 46 Elvis goes at 42 she's only 54 and they all they're all heart related ultimately you know so it was a very very tragic and you met her son who sadly died by suicide so her son died by suicide and that was very odd his name was Ben Benjamin Kyo so her first husband was a guy guy called Danny Kyo and her first child was Benjamin a really good looking young dad looked exactly like Elvis and again I was in Memphis in 2007 in a bar when I met him and no one was really hassling that much because he came in kind of under the radar and we had a few drinks together and we were chatting he loved Ireland absolutely loved Ireland he'd come over here a couple of times he'd spent some time in Cork actually had friends in Cork but I saw a bit, little bit about what the Prezi life was like then because I was heading off to a karaoke to get up and do a couple of Elvis songs and I dragged him <laughs> along and I said come on with me and come on we sing a song so I was walking down Beale Street in Memphis with Elvis's grandson going I'm going to a karaoke to sing with Elvis's grandson it doesn't get any better than this like you know and we, we got and he's going yeah man let's do it come on let's get up and sing some songs so just as we got to the door of the karaoke place these two bouncers appeared out of nowhere grabbed him and said you ain't going nowhere put him in the back of a car and brought him back to Graceland and he was screaming and shouting going I want to hang out with my Irish buddies and I want to go I don't want to go but they brought him away and said no way and Why? I was looking at him they were as bouncers as bodyguards they were looking after him and keeping an eye on him and they were just saying no way he's not going to get up there and make a public show of himself and they wouldn't let him do it so I got a little glimpse of that and I was going that's the life he that's lived that's the life yeah he wasn't allowed to enjoy himself mm-hmm. he wasn't allowed to get out and be himself you know these guys were dragging him away the minute he let loose the minute he you know wanted to do something different or you know let his hair down he was dragged away so that's Elvis's grandson you can imagine what it was like for Elvis's daughter yeah and we know about the four marriages of Michael Jackson and Nicolas Cage and all of that but as I said she was out on Tuesday night at the Golden Globes yeah and she looked well yeah and here she is speaking to Kevin Fraser from Entertainment Tonight on the red carpet at the Golden Globes on Tuesday night what was it like watching Austin on stage and during this movie and the making of this movie it was mind blowing truly mind blowing I really didn't know what it, what to do with myself after after I saw it. Yeah. I I had to take like five days to process it mm-hmm. because it was so incredible and so spot on and so authentic that yeah I I can't even describe what, what it meant. I think the film is brilliant in its own yeah. right, but but that endorsement from her yeah. and from Priscilla really helped it along, didn't oh, it? I mean, initially, they couldn't have made it without their without their yeah. participation. There's no way they could have made that film. And the fact that they got behind it, 
had endorsed it so much and and particularly uh, Butler, you know, they're really behind him uh, performing. But it's interesting though, yeah, it's, it's kind of bittersweet, isn't it? Because like he wins the he wins the Golden Globe and he's there and he thanks them in the speech and the two of them are in tears crying at the ceremony watching Austin Butler. And the chances are, I'd say he's going to be nominated for an Oscar and who knows, I mean, he may actually win it and she won't be around to see that, you know. She won't be around to see, thankfully she was around to see her father's name and legacy being reborn in many ways because of the Baz Luhrmann film. Um, she won't get to see the Oscars and get to see if he's nominated so she's missing out and all that so the timing of it is really odd you know just when her father's name is out there again yes she passes away so it's it's pretty it's pretty sad Brian Redden from Today with Claire Byrne and on the Ray Darcy show in the afternoon Dave Fishwick was talking about the documentary The Bank of Dave remember the crash back in 2008 Uh, when the financial world and our world was turned upside down and many banks internationally went to the wall. Well, out of the rubble of that crash, Phoenix-like emerged the Bank of Dave, a local Burnley bank for local Burnley people. The bank was set up by Dave Fishwick uh, and now Dave's story, the Bank of Dave, is a major motion picture. And Dave Fishwick is on the line. How are you doing, Dave? Good afternoon. (laughs) Marvellous. <laughs> you're always marvelous. You're you're one of those men who has this really positive outlook on life, and I suppose that's why you are where you are today. Now, a lot of people listening, Dave, won't know about the Bank of Dave, but we spoke back in the day in 2010, 2011. Yes, we did. So, so I know it. But will you tell them about you? You used to. Well, you left school at 16. We'll get we'll get that out of the way, uh, and then you set up a, a van, then a minibus business. And what happened then? Yeah. So. Left school at 16, absolutely useless, didn't have the price of a chip butter. And then uh, I wanted to get involved in cars and vehicles. I loved cars, uh, but I couldn't afford a gallon of petrol. Um, So I found somebody that allowed me to take their old part exchanges of an old garage away, clean them up, sell them, bring them back the original amount of money, and the difference was mine. And that was the beginning of starting a business. I went from one car to many cars, then into vans, and then I got a bus. And sometimes in life, you never know when these opportunities come, but when they do, you've got to grab them with both hands, Ray. So that's what I did. I I, I sold this minibus, and that was the beginning of something really big, because today I'm the largest supplier of minibuses in the country. But then that that takes us screaming up towards 2008 and the big crash crisis and the banks just stopped lending and my customers wanted finance for the buses as they had done for years mm. and the banks just stopped lending to them and I'm thinking have they done something wrong have they got a CCJ have they moved house have they stopped paying the bills but you know what Ray nothing had gone wrong with them the problem was at the front door of the high street bank they just stopped lending so I thought well either I stop selling minibuses which would be a problem or if I believe in these people, why don't I lend them the money? I understand what they're buying. I built it. I understand what they do for a living. They drive buses. Mm-hmm. And I know where they live. So I lent them the money. They paid me back. And I thought, this bank in Malarkey, it's not that difficult. <laughs> and that's how it started. But then I wanted to, to do something special. I wanted them to look at other businesses. And I wanted to help other small businesses get going. So I thought, well... I'll go and start a small bank. And down to London I went and I said to them, that's where all the bankers are in London. And I went there and I met Andrew Hilton, the head of the banking community. And I said to him, I said, "Um, I want to open a bank. And he said, where are you from? And I said, Burnley. That put him off for starters. And then he said, have you been to Oxford or Cambridge? 
And I said, well, let me tell you something about people that come from Burnley. We don't get them sort of opportunities. I've got no qualifications. He said, well, what do your mum and dad do? I said, well, my dad's got two jobs. He's a labourer on a farm in the morning and he fixes looms in the afternoon, which is what they call a tackler in the mills. My mum's a weaver. My dad's always had two jobs and he works seven days a week. And he said, no, no, no. He said, you've not got the correct qualifications, you've not got the correct parents, and you've not been to the correct school. You've absolutely no chance. I wanted to punch him, Ray. Mm. Uh, and when was the last time before you that they'd licensed a bank in the UK? A new high, a new high street bank has not been licensed for over 120 years in the UK. Right. And Ray asked Dave about the crash in Burnley. What was Burnley like after the crash? It, it, I think it was like every other town across uh, um, the UK, Ireland, and everywhere is the same. I think we all really, really struggled. Mm. And banks just stopped lending to everybody. I mean, people who rob banks go to prison, but banks who rob people get paid bonuses. Yeah. How does that work, Ray? And, and you, like the rest of us, were frustrated with what they'd done to the world. And yet, as you say, there were been paid bonuses and our governments bailed them out. Yes, it's the only business in the world that you win-win. So if you, if, you, if you get a load of money in and you send it off to America and they make loads of money by derivatives and credit default swaps and things that I really understand now just because I wanted to know exactly what's going on, and if it goes well, they get paid a fortune in bonuses. And if it goes bad, the taxpayer bails them out. It's the only industry you win both ways. So you behind this cheery, ex, cheery exterior, Dave, you were a bit angry and a bit frustrated. Um, and that was a driving force as well, I would imagine. Well, in life, you must never give up. I mean, I have four rules. Rule number one is never lose money. Rule number two is never forget rule number one. <laughs> and rule number three, and these, these are important, these last two, so uh, your listeners can perhaps write some of these I, down. I, yeah, okay. Rule number three is never give up, Ray. And rule number four, the most important one of all time, is never, ever give up. And then when you're up against the big institutions, yeah. I mean, the big banks hate me with a passion. And, and you, but I don't mind that. I actually quite like it. And you went down to London uh, with a minibus and a loud hailer at one stage. I, I did. I took one of my buses because it was full of diesel and mm. I went down in that and we filled it full of people and I stood on the roof outside the Bank of England because they wouldn't let me in the locked door. And they won't let me in, so I got a loud ale, I stood on the top of the roof of the bus and shouted through the windows um, So un until somebody come out. At least then they, they spoke to me. But we made the documentary with Feinstripe mm. and uh, it went on to, to, to be shown all over the world. Um, we won BAFTAs and, and Royal Tavern Society Awards and um, it was really, really well received by everyone in the world. And, and you realised early on, I suppose, the power of things like that. Um, yes, yeah. yes. I, I need people like yourself, Ray. Like I said to you when we spoke last time, you know, without people like you, we can, I can, and people like me cannot get forwards. We need protecting by the media mm. and we need the help of the media to push this forward. I would love to see a community finance operation like Burnley Savings and Loans, a Bank of Dave in every part of, 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 of England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland. I'd like to see one everywhere, but not owned by me, the Bank of Ray mm. or the Bank of Tracy. You know, owned by the people, run by the community to benefit the community and the profit go back into the community rather than the banker's bonus culture. So what are the top line figures now? for? It's not called the Bank of Dave, it's called... 
Burnley Savings and Loans. Okay. We're going through the process. It's very, very expensive. Um, we've lent over £30 million across the UK. Don't get me wrong, it's tiny. But in a community like Burnley, it's big. And if other people could do the same or mm. be inspired by us, that's that's where we've won. Because 30 million, 40 million, 50 million in each town and city, community makes such a difference. And I'll tell you for why. I got a letter the other day from Park School around the corner from the bank of Dave. And they said, Dave, I'm ever so sorry. I don't want a van or a minibus, but I do need your help. This was the headmistress that mm. wrote to me. She said, the kids are coming to school starving. Is there anything you can do? And I said, what do you need? She said, we would love a big industrial toaster and a lot of food. And I said, no problem. We bought the machinery. We sent it up to the school. I bought a year's supply of food for them. I told them to ring me three months before we get to the end of the year. I'll then buy another year's supply of food for them. And that's what we do. We we take the profit of, from what we do and we feed kids. If the big banks did the same, instead of paying tens of millions in bonuses, the world would be such a better place, Ray. But, but there's greed everywhere, Dave. Isn't there? There is. And, and in the payday loan industry, I made a, a series mm. called The, the, uh, the Lone Ranger, um, where I took the payday loan industry on and I got one cap for charging 5,500% APR and we won a lot of awards for that. But it... Them sorts of companies need stopping and Burnley Savings and Loans lends to people who perhaps would get stuck in that, that cycle of debt of 5,500% APR. Where does the credit union fit into your world? I love credit unions. I love it. I love them with a passion. But the problem with credit unions is they're only allowed to lend a certain amount of their income into businesses where we could lend money. Like I'll give you, for instance, I had a lady come to me that wanted to borrow money for IVF treatment. She'd saved up for years she had enough money to do it she went to the hospital and then since because of the credit crisis everything's gone up even that's gone up and it'd gone up 20% and she needed an extra few thousand pounds she didn't have the time left in her lifespan to be able to get the money in time for her to be able to have this treatment and she said Dave she's in tears she said Dave I need to borrow this money um, I've got nobody else to go to. She's been to a high street bank and they said they won't lend it to her because they've nothing to take back. They can't take the child or anything. Mm. And I just thought, oh, where's this world going? So I lent her the money and I lent it interest free. And I said, look, all I want you to do is pay me back when you can, no interest whatsoever. The Burnley Savings and Loans charity will take care of the interest. But I want you to do one thing. I want you to call it Dave. <laughs> Dave Fishwick from the Ray Darcy Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.